Romans chapter 8, verse 31. We're progressing. Verse number 31 today. That's such a short little verse, there would have to be at least two sermons. So, that's the way we're going to look at this one today. And what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? How many times have you heard that verse in your life? Or thought that verse? Especially at a strategic time where that verse came to your mind. It is a significant statement in Scripture. And we're going to uh, enjoy the the blessing of studying this here together. Um, I'm going to actually read now 31 through 39, the whole passage that shows us that we are secure in God's love. And that's our paragraph uh, caption here, 31 through 39, secure in God's love. What shall we say to this or these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will distress, will persecution, will famine, will nakedness, peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquered. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a great passage. That's where we're going to be for some time. Heavenly Father, we need to be here for some time to look upon the things that you have said in regard to your love for us. And there is so much here. So very much here. Help us as we begin this part of our study in this paragraph to uh, comprehend even better the great love you have for us. We ask your work in our hearts today as we studied the first part of a verse that uh, we will be attentive and that we will be challenged by it, that we would be responders to it. As you would see fit, Lord, do your work in our heart and life with the word that we read today, it is active, it is powerful, and it will change us. So thank you, Lord, for giving it to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've been studying Romans chapter 8, we are on the last paragraph, really. Uh, We've talked about security of the believer, how in the first four verses we are secured from the past. Remember, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. We are secured in the mind, verse 5 through 8. We're secured in living, verse 9 through 13. We're secured in our relationship with Him, and that's 14 through 18. 
We're secured in the future as well. Our future, 19 through 25. We're secured in our weakness, 26 and 27. We're secured in God's program. That's where we've been for a little while. And that's verse 28 to 30. And now, secured in God's love. That's my outline of the passage that we've been studying here. And and there's been many points made. Eight different paragraphs that we have been studying and now this one comes to this to a uh, place that I think brings us to the. He's been, if you take musical terms, he's been working on a crescendo all the way through, and that's where we have reached. We have reached the place where we're supposed to have louder voices as we read such a passage. It, it should excite your heart to read these words, and I think it does. But simply put, a case has been set before you. A case has been set there for you to make a verdict. The evidence has all been laid out on the table. The arguments have been stated, illustrated, and proven to be true. If you were a jury today, I would say at this point you have only one accurate response to the evidence presented. Your verdict must be that God loves you. It must be that God loves you. And if I haven't been able to convince you of God's love to this point in the study of Romans 8, I'm not sure that you will be convinced at all. Because God has been showing us that in this passage over and over. I believe every phrase has been an expression of God's love for us. And I think verse 32 of all of them is key to the whole argument. For it says in 32, He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? He gave His Son for you. Do you need a better display of that? Most of what we will see in this last paragraph, verse 31 through 39, are questions. Questions for you to answer. They are considered rhetorical. They're the sense that you already know the answer. There's an obvious answer, an obvious thing expected. But consider it as questions for you personally. There are seven of them. Seven questions. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? That's question number one. Also in verse 31, the second question. If God is for us, who is against us? In verse number 32 is the third question. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Verse 33 has question number four. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 34, question five. Who is the one who condemns? Verse 35, question 6. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? I'm very eager to get to that verse. Because many times we say, what shall separate us? But notice the first word is who. That's intriguing, isn't it? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Question 7 is also in verse number 35. 
with tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. And the rest of the thought is separate us from the love of Christ. There are no questions in verse 36 through verse 39. Just a statement, if you will. A statement of his love for us. And and you can see it clearly at the end of verse number 37. All these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And then on to verse number 39. Uh, what will be able to separate us from the love of God? Statements made in the last three or four verses there. So what is the point to all these questions? Why do you ask a question? Just because you're good at it? You want to impress people with your questions? Or do we not ask questions for a reason? What do you expect with a question? An answer. A response, right? That's what questions are for. All the way through this passage, he's been saying, God did this, God did this, God did this, God did this. Now he comes to this and says, all right, I've got a question for you. You know what I call it? Quiz time. He's brought you to the quiz, folks. He's brought you to the place where now he asks the questions, and I know they say it's rhetorical. But here's the point. You should know the answers by now. These are given to make us answer. I believe that this passage, right here at verse 31, we're on the verge of a doxology. I think if Paul had just a little more ink in his pen, he might have just let it rip. He was ready at this point for a doxology. He had other things to say, so he held that off to about chapter 9, and then he let go. But here, he, he, he wants to bring us to a place of a response. And there is a response. That's what we're going to look at here this morning. Because you've heard the phrase so many times in, in your life. You can lead a horse to water, but what? You can't make him drink. I looked that up to say, where did that come from? Well, it's been around for a long time. I think even in the 1400s they were saying that. I said, okay. So we've said it a lot. We're used to the phrase. You know what it means too, don't you? Just lay it out. Show them everything they need. Show them what they want. How do you get them to respond and take it? That's one paraphrase of that. It's simply this. It's my belief that the study of God's securing work that we've been studying, on our behalf, what he's done for us, calls for a response. It calls for a response. And I realize that some of you, this is a study that that's, perhaps greater than something you've ever thought through before. Some of you have talked to me about how this chapter has been at work in your life, how it's changing your thinking about things, and it's changing your life, and it's encouraging you in ways that you haven't been encouraged before. Some people, perhaps even some among us, might have had convictions uh, prior to studying this chapter about security, and maybe they've been resistant to it. Maybe they've held to a lack of uh, security as their position. And now, after seeing the pastor share it for 36 weeks in a row, uh, they're starting to get a little convicted or uncomfortable with it. Like, maybe my position isn't what it ought to be. You know, the testimony of this passage is that God has secured you. 
And I don't think anyone among us would say that God's wrong, would we? So maybe it's been jarring you a little bit if you've held contrary thoughts and you say, okay, well, God said this. God said this. I, I need to bring my mind around to that point. Some have grown deeper in their understanding of God's ways. Some, some have seen in this passage uh, what he has done for them and their appreciation has been growing. And I think all of us probably are at a better place now in understanding him than we were when we first entered into this passage. It's right for us to have a response to the word of God. It is right for us to do that. Uh, when we encounter God's word, there's a, a number of things that ought to do in our lives. But I want to show you eight things to get you started here this morning, okay? Put your marker here, or in some case, just rip your page out like Dale did, and uh, go back to Psalm 119. No, don't rip it out. His wasn't on purpose. His binding is going bad because we're always in the same passage. Um, Psalm 119, 119, verse 129. That's way, way, way far back into the psalm. Psalm 129. I'm just going to read 129 to 135 and show you eight things that should be your response to God's Word. Right? It's not all the responses out there, but this will get you started. First of all, I believe it should cause you to praise. Verse number 29 it says, your testimonies are wonderful. Isn't that a great response? You're reading God's word. They're wonderful. It should give you cause to praise. Also in this verse, verse 129, it gives you cause to obey. Therefore my soul observes them. In 130, it gives you wisdom to understand. The unfolding of your words give light. It gives understanding to the simple. That means it reaches all of us, folks. God's word is, a, is wisdom for all of us. In verse 31, 131, it gives you an appetite for more. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. The fifth thing it ought to do, it ought to give you a stronger desire for God's grace. In verse 132, Turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. You know, for those of us who have received God's grace, we ought to want more. Not that we're being selfish. But we know the beauty of it. We know the love that goes with it. We know the taste of it. We say, I like that. That's on my menu. I want more. I want more. God's grace. This psalmist is saying, I, I want more. Turn to me, God. I have a stronger desire for your grace. Verse, or number six is in verse 133. It gives you stability in your behavior. Establish my footsteps in your word, and do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. The seventh thing it does for you, it gives you resolve in these evil days. Redeem me from the oppression of man, verse 134 says, that I might keep your precepts. And in 135, the eighth thing it should do for you, 
it should give you a desire to please God. To please God. Make your face shine upon your servant, the psalmist says, and teach me your statutes. This, these are my initial statements I make for you in a simple manner today. God's love for you. And this passage that I present to convince you of that ought to cause you to praise Him. It ought to cause you to obey Him. It ought to cause you to understand Him. It ought to cause you to want more of His Word. It ought to cause you to want more of His grace. It ought to cause you to be more stable in your behavior. It ought to cause you to have resolve in these days. And it ought to cause you to desire to please Him. There's eight responses already I set before you. Just from studying God's Word. These are the things that are written that change our lives. That, that give us an answer for the questions that come our way. Paul says this in verse 31, as we see it right in front of us in Romans. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? What is the response? The NIV puts it that way, uses the word response. What shall we say in response to these things? The Amplified Version adds one word in the midst of that little phrase, and he says, what shall we say to all these things? <laughs> and that's a big list, isn't it? Trying to, to sum up a whole chapter of what God has done. What shall we say to these things? That's our question. It's a good question, isn't it? But I would tell you this. Your answer will reveal your heart. Your answer will reveal your heart. An ignorant heart would say, what things? A dismissive heart would say, I didn't see anything. A callous heart would not respond at all. An argumentative heart would say, yes, but... And then they go into whatever they want to do, something contrary, no doubt. A cold heart would say, but I don't care. A timid heart would still be in doubt. An ungrateful heart would think, well, this was all due me. I hope I haven't identified your heart here this morning in any of those that I've described. The, the theologian Lenski, he was a Lutheran theologian, and he said this, and I thought the quote was really worthwhile. He said, the rhetorical question arouses heightened attention as to what Christians are brought to say to these great things, these facts just stated. They certainly cannot stand and lament as though theirs is a sad lot. They must be ashamed of all doubt or complaint. I think that a heart check is really worthwhile. I mean, we don't have MRIs or CAT scans or X-rays or any other type to, I mean, go beyond just looking at a body and looking at an organ and looking at the tissue. 
the pastors in the world would love to have one that works on spiritual side, too. If you ever invent one, let us know. What looks at the soul? What is it that examines the soul? What is a Christian's test if it's not our response to the Word of God? How do we show that we've heard it, we understood it, we received it, we will do it? How do we show that if it's not in our response? I, I think every time we approach God's Word, we ought to be different than when we first opened it. Because it changes us, doesn't it? It changes us. And so there's this question we have today. What shall we say to these things? Is a question given to an entire congregation. And there's an answer that's expected. An answer should be given. What should we say to these things? Very appropriately, we had in our bulletin on the front cover, Psalm 107. And I was going to lead off with that because I also put it in my sermon. So, scan over there or turn there, however your device or whatever you're using here this morning, your Bibles. 107, Psalm 107. I'll show you a simple psalm here. I think we've studied this before, probably at a Thanksgiving time. Uh, because I, I love going to this passage. There's, there's only 43 verses, and that doesn't sound like much, does it? Um, but uh, there's a theme woven all the way through this psalm. And I'm just going to whet your appetite for it, and then I'm going to say, sometime this week, go back to it and reflect upon it. Give it a good 45 minutes of your life, all right? But at least start here. In Psalm 107, there's a theme, and it's in verse number 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let them say so. What are they supposed to say? Well, verse number one says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. You want a good study, see how many times that's said in Scripture. For His goodness, or His loving kindness is everlasting. So let the Lord, redeemed of the Lord say so. And then he goes into scenarios. And I think they were real. Maybe he knew them personally. Uh, maybe he knew friends that qualified for these scenarios. But he takes about six or seven verses at a, at a time. And he'll say things like, well, let's take this man. He's redeemed him, from verse 2, he's redeemed him from the hand of the adversary. Gather them from the lands, from the east and from the west, and from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness and the desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry, and they were thirsty, and their soul fainted within them. And then they cried to the Lord in their troubles. And He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he satisfied the thirsty soul, the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. The whole nutshell of that is that these folks were held in bondage to their enemy. The scenario, they, they were scattered all over the earth, and they had no home. They had no place to go. They were lost in the wilderness, trying to find a way to go, and they were hungry, and they were thirsty, and their souls were fainting in them. 
And they reached that place where they said, Lord, help us. And it says, and he delivered them. I love that phrase. He delivered them. At the point of their need, he came and he met that spot that they were in. The Lord redeemed them, brought them out of their troubles. To that, the psalmist says, let them say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Then he goes into the next group, starting with the very next verses, 10 and on. And he talks about those who lived in darkness. They were in darkness. They were prisoners in misery. They were in chains and they couldn't break out. They hated God's word. And they stumbled over the load that he had on them. But when they cried out for help, you know, that's generally the people we walk away from. The Lord rescued them. He rescued them and he brought them into the light and he broke their chains and he set them free. And the psalmist would say, let them, those the redeemed of the Lord, say so. He's calling on them. Just like he calls them group after group after group. And you say, I don't know if I qualify in any of these groups. Well, maybe we do. Verse 17 would be kind of a startling phrase for you. It starts, fools. And then it goes into a description of all their problems. We've been there. Who's redeemed us? Who answered our prayer when we were in distress? Did he say no when you say, Lord, save me? Did he turn you away? Or did he redeem you? Did he deliver you? It says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Beautiful psalm. Spend time in it this week. Look at the scenarios. Map them out. But the same thing is drawn in every single time. The Lord and his loving kindness. The Lord delivered. The Lord rescued. The Lord redeemed. And the same answer is always given. The redeemed should say so. They should say so. This entire psalm is built that way. It's repeated over and over and over and over again. Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness. Of all people on this earth today, you and I ought to know that. The Lord has been so good to us. His loving kindness has abounded to us. His mercy and His grace, He's just showered upon us. Don't we know that? Are we the redeemed of the Lord? Should we not say so? I think that's very fitting here in Romans chapter 8. Very fitting that we bring this up at this point. Because We've seen the display of the loving kindness of our God. We've seen it woven in every single phrase of this chapter. We've seen what He's done for us, and we've marked those things. We've come to know His love better. We've we've come to rest more securely in His security. We have become more content in His plan, haven't we? Have you had answers given to you that you didn't have before? Because you know what he's doing now? And you could rest in them? Are you excited about your future? He's told us what we're going to be. Conform to the image of Christ. Wow. That's why I'm thinking. 
Paul's about to break out in a doxology here. He's ready. What do you say to these things, he says. What do you say to these things? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I suggest to you, write your own doxology. Write your own. Put it down. You know, the hymn writers have been teaching us this for a long time, and we've been singing their songs. They sometimes go like this. The first verse, talk about creation and the wonders of creation, what God has done and His power displayed in the universe. Verse number two, the power of the cross. The difference He made in our lives because we were sinful and lost and He redeemed us through the blood of Christ and what God can do. And the third verse usually says, and when He comes again, and that future is for us and we can't wait to see it, but we know it's going to happen. And the power of that moment, how exciting that will be. The hymn writer comes to a conclusion. Then sings my soul. I save your God to thee. How great thou art. That's a doxology, folks. That's a response to what God has done. How can we sing even a song like that without, you know, at least making the verse go up a little bit on the chorus? Sometimes I know the song leader says, come on, folks, smile. But here, the, the, the writers of hymns for centuries have been teaching us. How do you express praise to God for what he has done? I'm not telling you to write a hymn unless you want to. Write a hymn. We could use some good ones. Personally, I think some real good Thanksgiving hymns would be in order. Christmas hymns. Let's have new ones. But let's talk about the praise that our God deserves. We ought to find every avenue we can to praise Him. And that's a perfect example of what we can do. What we can do. Some people, you know, when you hear something that's exciting, when somebody says, what shall we say to this thing? They got loose with that big amen. There was a church I used to belong to. Well, I was the pastor of it, to tell the truth. I think half the congregation would have been in cardiac arrest. That's, you don't say that. That was just, I mean, they're so proper and so everything that, you know, that would disrupt everything. It would just, it would just jar them in their pew. Just to say, some people are more like the kind who just whisper that, thank you, Jesus. They just whisper it in their heart with their words. They just think. Some people, it's just a tear. A tear breaks out in her eyes. A, a sweet lady years and years ago when I was in Birmingham, her name was Ann Vickroy. You'll meet her in heaven. She's there, I think. I hope. Now, she was so desperate for it when I knew her. She was in her high 80s, uh, 30-some years ago. And uh, she said, I don't know why the Lord still has me here. And I said, I do, because you encourage me, Ann, every single week. And she would sit there listening intently to the message week after week. And you start talking about the cross. And her eyes turn red. And then you see the tears start going down her face. That was her response of praise every single time. Because it's about her Savior. So we have varieties of ways of responding. I know that. I've given you a whole bunch of different ways you could respond this morning. But the question is there. And that's the point. What shall we say to these things? 
do we not feel some obligation to respond? Is there not something in us that says, yes, I want to say something about that. I want to respond to that. I want to be more obedient because of that. I want more of His grace because of that. I want more of a desire for His Word because of that. I want that to change me. Those are responses. There are so many things that Paul's yet to unleash in front of us with these words. Right after this question, he says, Now, if God is for us... Now, I think by now you're convinced that he's for you, right? If you're not, I don't know what translation you're reading today. Because it's stated it over and over and over again that he is for you. And I'm just giving you a preview for next week. But just a thought. When you look at the next phrase, it doesn't say, if God is for us. It says, since God is for us. I'm very eager to bring that before you. I just give you the preview, okay? So you come back next week. It's just the entrance. Paul is asking here to say it now. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to this thing since God is for us? Paul never once questioned God's attitude or his actions toward us in this passage. And he's not going to begin with verse number 31. He's not questioning God at all. Is God for us? That's not his question. He's making a statement. A statement that sums up the entire amount of the verses we've been studying that's gone before us. The fact is God is for us. And we've been viewing that all along. It ought to have warmed your heart by now. It ought to have been convincing you by now. I hope you are convinced that God is for you. That's what the passage has said. And He's for you because He loves you. I was looking as I was preparing this for some little powerful quote or illustration that just bring the point home, you know? Something that Spurgeon might wallop somebody with. I said, boy, that would be fun. You know... Something that might melt us like butter. I don't know. I was looking for something and I came to a simple conclusion. If God's worked on your behalf, and the way he's expressed in these own verses we've studied, that he loves us, is that, if that's not sufficient for you or me, and we have to trust something else than trust him, or look to something else than to look to him, if it's not sufficient for us to bring us to trust Him more and obey Him more and love Him more, I could give you quotes all day long from spiritual giants all over this planet. But it won't benefit us any better than what God has stated. It won't. We learn to live with salt substitutes, imitation flavors, powdered creamer for our coffee. Fake leather chairs. Well, all kinds of replacements for the originals. And the reality is there is no generic option for the love of God. I don't want to paraphrase or the Reader's Digest edition of this passage. <laughs> I want it in its pure and full measure. 
I want it in the full force of His love for me as He's expressed it. I don't want to be satisfied with a sample of it or just a token of it. I want the entire display, don't you? I, I want to see the whole thing so I have a chance to respond to it. I, I want to say that this is what this means to me. The hymn writer wanted a thousand tongues to sing his God's praise. One wasn't sufficient for him. I could almost hear him say it this way. Let me wear out this tongue. I let it go limp because I, I constantly use it. Let it collapse in exhaustion and then give me another one to start again. And keep it coming. A thousand of them might do. I've got a lot of praising to go. Don't let a little phrase go without notice this morning, folks. That's what I'm trying to do with you. A little phrase that we're so eager to get to the rest of verse 31, into verse 32, all the way to verse 39. Great phrases over and over and over and over and over again. And then that one question we don't want to miss. What shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? That's your quiz. You have to put the answer in the block. And if you have nothing to say, you have to take the class over. That's what we'll start January the 1st. Don't let the little things go by. I think it's a big thing. Let me read to you two passages. Hold your place right here. We'll go to Revelation 22. Revelation chapter 22. I'm going to start with the first verse. I'm just going to read five verses here. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. It says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street, on either side of the river, was a tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They, the bondservants, will see His face, and His name will be on their forehead. And there will no longer be any night, they will not have any need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Who is he talking about? Who are they? You could say, me. Does that excite you to read about your future? Can you almost hear that river going? See that tree full of 12 kinds of peaches? Isn't that just a beautiful sight? And then we're going to be there and we shall see Him and we shall serve Him and we shall reign with Him. And what's the ending of the last three or four words? Forever and ever. We read a passage just like this, and we say, well, what do you say to that? What should we say to such things? And then we're here in Romans. 
And what we just heard in the last uh, eight or nine sermons, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He would be firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. I just read what God has done for you. What do you say to these things? I'm going to leave the answer to that with you. I'm going to leave that for you. I'll let you write your own doxology today. Because I have one in my heart. And I hope you have one in yours too. Gracious Lord, what a question you've set before us today. What a penetrating question it is. What a heart-revealing question it is. I hope, Lord, as we have heard these things today, we haven't responded to it in a negative way, in a unconcerned way, in a distant way. I hope, Lord, that uh, the things that you have done have encouraged us to respond, first in our hearts and then in our lives. Lord, we certainly do thank you for the display of love you've shown us week after week after week after week in this passage. We have come to know it well, I think. I hope we've come to love it well, too. But here's our chance to respond to you, and perhaps even some are doing that during the midst of this prayer. But our response really is how we live the rest of our life, now that we've had the question. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for being so good. We rejoice in that. Your loving kindness is everlasting. We praise you for that because of our Savior who made it possible for us to receive it in the first place. You are Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.